What if I could share with you the worst day of my professional life without fear of judgment or ridicule and without loss of respect? Could we learn together from my experience? Case Matters, a podcast series created expressly for Australian dental practitioners, intends to do just that, to create a shared experience where all points of view are explored to help empower safer practice. Hello, my name's Dr. Annaline Weston, dental legal consultant at Dental Protection, and I'm here with my colleague and fellow dental legal consultant, Dr. Mike Rutherford, for today's episode of Case Matters. Hello. Thanks, Mike. We're taking a bit of a different approach today as today's topic is in fact a very difficult subject. We want to discuss the regretful cases that occur when a practitioner fails to recognize oral cancer and is told by the patient, you have shortened my life. And we wanted to look at all the consequences for everyone involved. Look, I think this is a very good approach, um, Adeline. Um, To our listeners out there, normally when we do these, we are reading off a script that we have developed and we go off piece a bit, but it's basically... We know what each other's going to say. We've taken this approach today because this is a very personal and emotive matter. Um, I think most of the dental legal advisors, and I certainly know Annalene and I, have both had a tear in the eye at some stage when dealing with these. And we are the people least involved in the whole process. This can be devastating for the patient, for the patient's family, and for our members. So we just thought that if we just spoke naturally of our own experiences of this, it might come across a little more raw um, in this vein because we haven't discussed this prior. Annalene and I may disagree or may have different points of view, but I think collectively this adds to the value in the information we're trying to, uh, to, to pass on. Now, Mike, when have we ever disagreed on anything? (laughs) So I thought we might start off by outlining the common ways that these cases come to light, because I think for many of our members wouldn't have ever seen an oral cancer. I know they used to say that you would see one oral cancer in your career. Personally, uh, I've found five. Yeah, which is why a lot of my friends won't come and have checkups with me. But I think perhaps we should start off by looking, you know, how commonly do we see these cases when they come across our desk? Um, look, I was just thinking my own practice life for 40 years, I've certainly sent oh, probably dozens of patients off to oral pathologists um, for review, um, but I've only ever had one that was a real cancer. Um, I don't think I could have missed it because it was so obvious. And that was a devastating journey for, uh, for, patient, for my patient and for me uh, up to the point of her death. Um, I think you only need one of these to make you very careful and mindful for the rest of your life. Um, So in 40 years, I only ever saw one. How much do we see it in in this role? Look, not very often. Um, But, gee, I think we remember every single one of them. So how do they present? Well, look, I'm going to start from the the less common first. Um, Dental specialists normally see patients where there's already a suspicion of a lesion uh, or or, or a diagnosis. So when we hear about complaints about dental specialists or when dental specialists phone us, it's usually a complaint about their management, a failure to biopsy, uh, a failure to warn about the risk of not monitoring Mm. or a failure of management, but it's not so much that it was just missed. Mm. Though we do get biopsies in the wrong place, of course. 
Yes, yes. And biopsy um, results that aren't read. Yes, yes. And with both of those, and, and I'm, I'm certainly aware there has been a misunderstanding from what the GDP has said, these biopsy, uh, the right palate and the left palates mm. biopsy, and often because the specialists believe that what they're looking at there is more relevant or more likely, and sometimes it's just somebody wrote the wrong thing. Mm. And sometimes the patient doesn't know as well. The patient will misdirect the specialist and say, no, it's this area on the left, but actually that wasn't what the practitioner was sending for at all. Yeah, and, and I think when this happens... I think there's a failure of communication. Oh, definitely. Um, some of us, I think, are concerned about worrying our patients and maybe we don't have that robust conversation that we need to have with our patient and say, look, I can see something there, I'm concerned about that and this is why I want to send you to the specialist and perhaps giving them a mirror or showing them an intraoral photo mm. so they're aware of what it is and what it looks like that we're concerned about. Gee, intraoral cameras have made such a difference to this, though, haven't they? Because they we can actually send a photo with the referral to the specialist, which isn't something we could have done before. So perhaps that's perhaps another way of considering to how to stop not have these breakdowns in communication. I mean, I was old school, so I was always used to handwrite. But these patients, I found handwritten referrals, yeah, yeah. and you drew a picture. Now, look, I think they're brilliant because it it means there's less chance that you're going to pick the wrong side. Yeah. It also lets the specialist see if there's been change. Yes. Now, if it's taken a patient a month or two weeks to get in and there's demonstrable change between your photo and what the specialist is viewing, I mean, that's got to be of diagnostic benefit. Yeah, you'd think, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. So what about our general practitioners, Mike? Well, how do those present? Well, my experience, and, and, and perhaps yours is different, is usually it's out of the blue. Um, it's not yeah. where a practitioner has seen something and thought, oh, it's probably okay, um, or has decided they're going to do something about it next time the patient comes in, even if they've, if they've noted in the records. It tends to be a bolt out of the blue where the practitioner has no idea it's coming. And it's generally approached from the patient or their family um, it's generally very emotive and often quite aggressive and it's usually late in the process, late in the diagnosis. I agree. Sometimes the specialist or the hospital contacts the practitioner. So it's usually this idea that you should have picked this up and because you didn't, there's been you know, X months, whether it's five months or 15 months, and now I'm in the hospital and I've got a diagnosis of terminal uh, mm -hmm. cancer. Um, and you can understand why a patient or, or their family would be incredibly emotive and you can, you, you, you can understand them being quite vehement, you know, in their assault on a practitioner where they believe, in, in all honesty, that that practitioner has not done their job and not seen or diagnosed what in their mind should have been obvious. I think sometimes the doctor doesn't help as well. I mean, I know I've had a couple of cases where the patient has, or the, the partner has come back and said, my husband's in hospital, he's just had a radical neck dissection. I was asked when the last time we went to a dentist was, I was asked if you had noticed. And this has now led me to believe. And again, you can understand that these are quite simple questions that people are asking because they're trying to get an understanding of how things have evolved. 
but how the patient could take that information and really run with it. Yeah, absolutely. And look, sometimes um, the medico may be being talking a little bit about a turn in that, um, but often with these, I think we find that people listen or hear the words they want to hear, <laughs> and perhaps the doctors wrap that up with all sorts of other questions. Um, but perhaps the one that the patient remembers was, yeah, I saw Annalene or Mike you know, four months ago. Why didn't they pick this up? Mm. Um, and sometimes it can be a little unfair. Um, if it's oropharyngeal, you, uh, that may be quite a way past the pillar of falsies. It might be in a place we wouldn't normally see in our oral screening. Um where in the patient's mind, you know, that's the oral region. We've got the bright light. Why didn't we pick it up? Yeah, and you can understand their perspective. And I think particularly sometimes we find that the patients have raised discomfort as well. So they've raised discomfort and it's been confused or muddled up with something else. Have you ever seen any of those cases? I know I have where the patient's presented with a repeated pain in, say, 3-6, mm -hmm. and the practitioner is so focused on 3-6 and the pain, but in fact what's been going on is lingual to that 3-6 under the tongue has mm -hmm. been something yeah. And look, I was always told, always taught that cancer didn't hurt. But in fact, I've seen a number of cases where the patient's first presentation to the dental practitioner has been pain. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I've seen any of those. I mean, it, it, it makes sense. And I, I guess what they were trying to point out was pain is not necessarily a symptom. Mm. Um, and, and most of these things, lumps and bumps, don't hurt. Um, but that we shouldn't ignore them just because they don't hurt. Mm. Uh, or, the, or the pain's not a presenting symptom. Yeah, I've certainly seen people who have been thrown off or caught off guard by what appeared to be a dental problem. Mm -hmm. And then the oral cancer has been sitting there quietly or loudly, and it's been missed because there have been more obvious dental issues for that patient. So I've probably had, just off the top of my head, three cases where there's been another confounding issue which is masking that cancer so the dental practitioner has seen the patient multiple times to attend to a more routine issue and the cancer's just been there growing and growing and growing yeah, yeah, and yeah. no one's noticed because yeah I there's think been we, a more obvious dental issue yeah we've all been caught up with that i Absolutely. guess when you're dealing with the problem in front of you and look this is probably not the context to talk about this but from a defensive mechanism i mean you always make sure if you're focused on a problem and it's an 013 limited exam. Um, if you're ever tempted to put in 012 or 011, when you're actually focusing on that pulpitis in the 36, um, that leaves you open to uh, criticism later on. That if, if you did 011, that includes a colon cancer screening. Absolutely. Or an 012. So um, correct coding. Uh, is, is one of our defensive me uh, mechanisms. And I, and I don't mean that in we're trying to uh, absolve ourselves of any responsibility, but the whole point is if you're focused on that particular problem, it's not expected that you're going to see the rest of them out. Mm, but yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you mentioned a moment ago about the consequences for the patient, and certainly I think we would all agree that for example, a radical neck dissection is an incredibly confronting procedure for a patient and for their family, yeah. both at the time, but then also the period of healing afterwards, because of course, oral cancer doesn't just stay limited to the phase. Mm. 
or to the mouth, I should say, it does invade. And patients can need obturators. They can need to have their eyes replaced and all manner of really quite distressing prosthetic outcomes. And then there's grafting from other parts of the body. And it's only understandable, I think, that if a patient goes through that really quite aggressive procedure, that they would be looking for somebody, they would be looking to see if it could have been avoided. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And look, it's, it, it's incredibly distressing. It's, I mean, this is a little bit on, uh, off the topic, but um, I heard this morning about a friend of mine um, who witnessed somebody break their leg to the point where they're actually having a, um, a, a below knee amputation. Gosh. And you know, strangely, I thought, well, look, if you had to pick anything, you'd pick that. Um, Always not the that you get a choice, but um, <laughs> the problem with once you start dissecting the oral cavity, um, you know, the blood supply, the lymph supply, the functions of the oral cavity, and this is why we, we see these, this incredible distress. Um, you're taking away potentially people's ability to eat, um, to communicate. To kiss. Uh, to kiss and, and care. Um, you're taking away their persona. Um, often these things involve significant facial changes, alterations, Absolutely. and usually not, not for the better. Um, so you may have that auditory signal that something's different because they've lost half their tongue or, or the dentition's missing. Uh, you get that disfigurement that's involved. And this can change people's personalities. It can change yeah. their whole life. Um, so these things can be far more impactful than just about, uh, look, uh, I'm, I'm generalising, but cancer in almost any other part of the body. If, yeah. if there has to be a resection, um, even if there's radiation, you lose your salivary glands. Yeah. I mean, you know, how do you ever go back to eating a steak with no saliva? Um, and I think all of us have dealt with patients and even that, that the stress of having no saliva from treatment, yep. even if the treatment's successful, um, the legacy will last a lifetime. It's inevitable then that after the event or sometimes during the event that the practitioner can receive a complaint. And oftentimes this is where we come in, mm -hmm. where the practitioner may or may not have been aware of the cancer depends on the community they were in. Sometimes practitioners hear that the patient's sick or they mm -hmm. hear the patients in hospital uh, just in the local community. So oftentimes, though, the first time they hear is when they either get a letter from a solicitor or a letter from the regulator. And I just really wanted to take a minute or two to explore the slightly different journeys that those are. And um, yeah. I guess what each party's looking for. Yeah. And, and, and look, that's certainly my experience in... in you know, these members that are just a bolt from the blue and it's so distressing and you know, generally they've got to look up the patient records just to find out who they were and what happened and, you know, as you always would do, drag out those radiographs or the pictures yeah. and just see was there something there that you think you should have seen or something there that was obvious. Yeah. Um, I think they're very different journeys, whether it's a legal claim or Agreed. a regulatory claim. Um and maybe we'll explore that. Um, certainly if it's a legal claim, um, if you're being accused of negligence, um, 
sorry, just to be clear with that as well, the negligent act would be failing to diagnose oral cancer. That's often the terms that these, when we talk about negligent, it's um, doing something that you shouldn't have done or more commonly not doing something that you should have. So a claim in negligence for a cancer would often come in as failure to diagnose squamous cell carcinoma, failure to refer, failure to take appropriate steps. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. 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 And so, then there's got to be that harm done. Yeah. And which, of course, if there is that diagnosis of cancer is almost a given. And when these are presented as a statement of claim, they are always outlined to the fullest. So it's in the patient's interest to document every aspect yes. of, of this outcome that has affected them. And this in itself can just be so distressing to read. Um and they also, of course, uh, concentrate on what they call the non-economic losses or the, the general damages. So this is not verifiable costs. These are the intangibles, you know, the loss of uh, consortium, the inability to speak. Um, night terrors. The night terrors, <laughs> the scaring yeah. your grandkids because you yeah. don't look like other people. And... Of course, this is very distressing to read. And how do you quantify something like that? How do you put a dollar value on it? Um, when the claims come, there is often the recommendation from the lawyers and there's certainly a recommendation from us at an appropriate time that a heartfelt apology... Oh, absolutely. Um, ..is is 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 really healing. Um for everyone. Yeah, you know, certainly the patient wants to hear it, the patient's family, and generally it's helpful to the practitioner too to get that that burden. You're not necessarily apologizing for missing the diagnosis. You're no. apologizing for the outcome. You're apologizing that you know a patient under your care um, has had this journey, has, has gone through all these things. So while when we talk about negligence a very emotive word you know we're often talking about money and compensation a significant part of that that we all recognize is you know that apology or that discussion and that acknowledgement of how these things have affected our patients absolutely i think a lot of people are scared to apologize because they're worried that in some way it's going to help the patient build more of a case against them perhaps but the reality of it is we're here we've got a legal claim against us Saying sorry is only going to be a good thing for the patient yeah. and it's and their family, and yeah. it's only going to be a good thing for you because you used the word healing, Mike. And the reality of it is, is that it is incredibly beneficial. There is so much research about how saying sorry benefits yeah. other people, but also benefits ourselves and how we feel because we are good people and we are sorry. Yeah, and and the the other thing is by this stage we're relying on expert reports, we're relying on hospital discharge yes. summaries. Um, so Fantastic. we're looking at a lot of evidence. Um, so in some way, we're not involved in the should this have been picked up, should it have been picked up earlier, um, because we have all that evidence or all that opinion, either for or against, that all that's on the table. Um, so this is looking at the personal side. Yeah, the psych reports in particular can be very distressing when you truly see the impact it's had on someone. I yeah. personally find yeah. them find them to be very upsetting. 
Yeah, again, and I just want to keep acknowledging this, we are the least affected of any mm. party in this. But some of those psych reports are just so distressing. It would break read. your heart. It would absolutely break your heart. So we're here. There's a legal claim. As Mike has mentioned, we have expert reports now. The patient will, or the patients, they're called the claimant in a legal claim or a plaintiff, but we'll call them the patient because that's who they are to us. Mm-hmm. The patient or their family will have lawyers working with them who will put together a case of experts about what has been done and in what ways the practitioner we're working with has been negligent, failed. Now, we too seek expert reports because we need to know if there was any failing on the part of the practitioner we're helping. Mm -hmm. And if there was any failing, did it significantly make a difference? Because regretfully, if Mrs. Smith comes to see me on a Monday and there's a squamous cell carcinoma in situ and I don't see it, and her GP picks it up on Tuesday, that day has made no difference to her prognosis. And we do come across situations like that. So we do do our appropriate due diligence in a respectful and appropriate way to assess whether or not the practitioner has missed Mm -hmm. the cancer. Mm -hmm. And if they have, then we move down onto the next stage of the journey, which is obviously we need to reach an agreement with the family on behalf of that practitioner. So we would call that a settlement. In the law, you're supposed to put people back to where they were before the uh, incident, the negligence happened, or financially compensate them for what they've lost. And in situations like this, it's always a financial compensation because we can't go back in time. There are things like loss of income, um, as Mike's mentioned, the general damages, which is the more personal, emotional stuff. There are situations, of course, uh, oftentimes in these claim where the patient dies during the claim. Mm-hmm. I know, Mike, you've had to ascend, attend a bedside settlement where the patient died um, very shortly after you reached the agreement and they were essentially trying to get money for their children. Yeah. Um, I've attended similar. It's We take that burden away from the practitioner and attend on their behalf because ultimately we're the people with the responsibility to make the agreement, but also going back to Mike's point, we are the people least affected and it's an incredibly upsetting and emotional time. And we would really would never want to put any of our practitioners in that position. Yeah. I think um, I'd probably like to point out at this stage that when we seek specialist reports, because we have to work out whether we can defend a claim or not. And sometimes we have to acknowledge that it's not defendable. Um, I'd just like to point out this does not affect in any way that we the way we view our colleagues. Oh, absolutely not. Um, you know, you can have all the expert reports in the world saying you should have picked it up, uh, you should have done something about it. But our support um, for our colleagues in this position is exactly the same. Um, the outcome of the court, ca- oh, sorry, of the claim may be completely different. Um, but it doesn't change our attitude or approach to our colleagues. It could happen to any of us, Mike. I mean, the reality of it is, is every single person will make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Every single person will make poor judgment calls, will miss things. And that's not every single dental practitioner. That's every single person. Yes, yes. And we're not detached from that. Yeah. You know, we're not not machines, and even machines make mistakes. So it is inevitable that there will be times as practitioners where we will make mistakes, and it's uh, this is, I think, for all of us, 
all our worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. But we're not here to judge. We're here to support and to get the best possible outcome, the softest landing that we can that yes. is appropriate for everybody. Um, the regulator then, they yeah. look at this very differently, don't you think? Yeah, they do. And, and I was thinking we almost touched on it a moment ago when, when you said if you missed a diagnosis on a Monday and the GP picked up the diagnosis on the Tuesday, um, in the eyes of the law, the patient hasn't been disadvantaged by your by that one day. So the claim of harm done is minimised because it's been picked up straight away. Whereas in the eyes of the regulator, they still look at our professional duty. And even if it hasn't changed the patient's outcome in a legal sense, um, we have still miss that diagnosis. Mm. So it comes back to professionalism. So the regulator looks at it purely from that duty of care. Um, While they may certainly acknowledge the harm done to the patient or the outcome, necessarily the the regulators are looking at, did we do our job uh, to a professional standard, to to the acceptable standard? So they don't deal with compensation or or payouts or anything like that. They're looking at was it reasonable or not reasonable that we did not pick up a lesion on the day we performed that 012 examination. And it makes sense, really, when you think that the role of the regulator is to protect the public. What they essentially need to do is they need to know whether we are safe. So if we've made a mistake once, are we likely to make it again? Mm-hmm. And that's really what they're looking for. I also find, Mike, I don't know your experience, but there are some things which I think many practitioners would feel to be quite peripheral. For example, the dental records. And the regulator will do a deep dive in the dental records and what they do and don't contain yeah, yeah. and whether or not there's a CPITN. But in many ways, it feels very irrelevant to the fact at hand. Mm-hmm. But in mm-hmm. fact, the reason the regulator is doing that is because they are measuring you against your professional standards, which are as follows. And they're picking up how many places you've fallen below that standard because it gives them a feel for what actually truly happened on that day and whether you are a threat to the public. Yeah, yeah. And and, and certainly, I mean, that's reasonable. If, If there's an allegation that you did not perform your duty, um, and, and the regulators in their investigation find out that you didn't do a CPTIN, you haven't taken radiographs for several years, that you haven't updated a medical history. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's circumstantial, but it certainly points towards perhaps a, 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 a not a very rigid approach to or professional approach to the oral examination. Paints a picture, doesn't it? It I mean, Simon and I talk about this all the time when we're doing our record-keeping education, but practitioners judge us on the standard of our records and our regulator judges us. If you see some shonky records or records which are incomplete or poor, Mm -hmm. you form a view of that practitioner that they are not a good practitioner. And it's unfortunate. Oftentimes, that's all the dental board has really got to go on is they see a copy of our records and they're a hot mess and they think, well, no wonder, perhaps, Mm -hmm. perhaps. perhaps. So what can happen then is we find the practitioner can respectfully be fighting on multiple fronts. So we can have a claim in front of the regulator where they're being audited for their records or perhaps they're now being supervised or 
in, uh, they're now having to have their records audited on a regular basis and somebody's submitting reports about them. They may have conditions on their registration that they need to work through. He had the legal claim ongoing and it's a slow process. Yeah, yeah. They can take years. They can take years and they often do. I mean, the more complex they are or the more high value you know, in, a, in a monetary sense or in a in a damages sense, damage to the patient, mm. the more likely they are just to string out for ages. And of course, we're seeing cancer more and more in younger patients too. Yeah. And from the perspective, Mike's talking about damages there, and I touched earlier on loss of income. Mm -hmm. If you have somebody who's in their 30s or 40s, they have many working years and all that loss of income does need to be considered in the legal claim. Yeah, yeah. So they've really changed, I think, the, the types of claims with this. And, mm -hmm. and I think... Yeah, so, and then the third area in which the practitioner is really um, fighting is, is fighting with themselves because we find that so many practitioners who go through this don't feel good about themselves. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I what I mentioned before is you find people go back, and I, I know I do it, <laughs> you go back over your records, you go back over your radiographs, and you check was there a radiolucency or a you know, a, a fuzziness of the of the mandible on, visible on the on the bite wings that with the benefit of hindsight maybe you should have seen maybe it was there four years ago and sometimes our members can jump to conclusions that it's all their fault because mm. it's there and they can't they didn't pick it up um, sometimes the reality is by the time it reaches a bite wing, uh, it's expanded halfway along the mandible and, and the patient was already in very severe, um, medically very severe, severely compromised. Um, so I, I guess we'd always say talk to us before you take any action because sometimes Absolutely. our members beat themselves up or, or want to throw themselves at, you know, to the mercy of the patient where it may not be as it appears to them in their in their distress. And the patient may not be feeling very merciful. Yeah, the patient yeah. may be feeling very, very wrong. And we talk about the second victim. And I think this really is a classic example where there are very much more than one victim in the case of an oral cancer. There is the patient, there is the patient's family, there is the dental practitioner, there is the dental assistant who was sat there mm -hmm. and sometimes is thinking, maybe I should have told Mike that yeah, there was yeah. a lump on the edge of his tongue. Yeah. Maybe I should have. Maybe, maybe I, you know, and then all those situations where there are administrative slip-ups, referrals that don't get sent or letters back that don't get scanned. And a lot of people can end up feeling very, very, very guilty yeah. in a situation like this. And I would encourage you to absolutely to well, talk to us and not to isolate yourself. We do have things... Uh, services available such as our counselling service so you can talk to a professional counsellor if you find yourself in this situation mm -hmm. but I also think that I've seen practitioners try and walk through this alone yeah. and not seek advice from their you know not share their burden with their colleagues or with their families I don't know if that's happened to yeah, you Mike where uh, someone's partner doesn't know they're going through this exactly exactly yeah they're, they're embarrassed they're ashamed they're worried about what their peers would think if they found out about this, what their partners would think. Um, it's a difficult walk, you know, journey to walk alone. And if you do isolate yourself or do you, do you do keep it to yourself, 
you know, as you're saying, often other people in the practice are affected as well. Mm. If you keep it to yourself, you're not helping the rest of the practice. No. Sometimes there's multiple practitioners have seen the patient over the years. There's the nurses, there's the, the reception staff. Um, if it's a practice that cares, it affects everybody. Yeah. Um, and this is where hopefully, you know, our experience in this area and the advice we can give can help because it's very hard to make rational decisions when you're confronted with something as as confronting as, confronting <laughs> as this. Um, and this is where somebody with a bit of experience and somebody who can be fairly objective and look at it from the outside can um, can give you some uh, some guidelines or some some things that you should consider and some support yeah. I think just to finish off really one of the most important things we've learned through going through these cancer cases is we do see some patterns mm-hmm. and those patterns often are practitioners not having a regular or um, a systematic approach to screening soft tissues, when they screen them, how they document how they screen them, Mm -hmm. uh, when they refer, how they document how they refer. There are occasions where the patient has been appropriately screened and documented, and then this has just arisen anyway. But oftentimes we find the practitioner comes to us and they're actually kicking themselves because in their heart they're not sure they're actually not sure if they looked that day because their records don't help them Mm -hmm. with that information. So I would certainly encourage you to consider some protocols to have in place to ensure that you are appropriately screening at appropriate times. And if you're not sure what that would look and feel like, reach out to your local oral pathology specialist because I'm very confident that they would be delighted to assist with some guidance. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. And... Is there anything else that you think would yeah. be valuable to share? Well, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about, you know, these pre-populated, um, you know, the hot key where it says you've done the examination, you've done the pre-procedural rinse, you've done the oral cancer screening, <laughs> and it's all populated there. Um, and, and the risk is if it's automatically in your notes, you know, perhaps you don't look as carefully or you can't remember if you did or you didn't that time and often a simple pre-populated one doesn't show an individualization Mm. it it doesn't hook into whether you questioned whether the patient's a smoker whether they've always had Mm. that you know that leukoplakia on the on the lip um this is where you need to individualize these notes if you even if you don't see anything of particular concern, if you document changes that you see or if you see scars and you can document there's been previous biopsies or things like mm. that, that's all relevant to, 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 I guess, ensuring for yourself and for anyone else who sees your records that you made an individual mm. um, and, you can, and a verifiable mm. oral cancer screening. No, I agree. My template because um, I do use one for checkups, it says uh, reason for attendance, medical history. Uh, I put who else was in the room, uh, mm-hmm. extra oral examination, intraoral examination, and then I have a blank CPITN, mm-hmm. soft tissue screen, and then discussed 
So my templates very, very, very skinny. But what it means is that, that my dental assistant can say to me, did, did we do the CPITN? Did we do the, if I haven't called it out to her? So yeah, she can yeah. prompt me um, and I'll tell her what to, what to write there. Or when I come back and finalize my notes at the end of the appointment, I'll yeah. quickly see if there's something that I have missed. Well, you're just, you, you, you're giving yourself a template you know, to prompt you to put those individual, yeah, to put, put those individual um, answers in for that particular patient. Then my issue is the ones where the template is the start no, and no, the beginning. Absolutely, yeah. and and I do agree with that. Like I say, mine's very very skinny, and I think I found oral cancer when I'd been about I was about three months post grad, and it was actually a secondary on the lateral border of the tongue. Mm-hmm. The patient was very 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 unwell. And the fact that I found it was no never mind, really, because he died within weeks of mm. the primary. But having that experience so early on and seeing how poorly somebody looked and seeing very, very distinctly what squamous cell carcinoma looked like, because that is what the secondary was, it has really sharpened my focus, I guess, on how important this is. But I, I live in constant fear of either missing it or forgetting to look. Yeah. And that's why I have that prompt in my records because my dental assistant will chip me. She knows how I screen for oral cancer and she will chip me if I don't do it. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, she's um, she's well yeah. <laughs> she's well trained or she's got me well trained, one I mean, or the other. Yeah, we, 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 we're all trained to look for it, but unfortunately sometimes that personal experience of seeing what it looks like or, or knowing what it feels like if you think you've missed something uh, really sharpens you up for the rest of your career. Yeah, I think so too. So anything else you want to share, Mike? No, I think uh, I think that might be about it. Oh, excellent. So on that note, thank you all for listening to this episode of Case Matters. As ever, uh, if you like dental protection podcasts, then please do subscribe or give us a like. And if there's anything you want to hear us discuss or any cases you'd like us to explore, please do reach out to us via email. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you in our next episode. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.